Revelation 19, Revelation 19. We're going to finish that up, Lord willing, this morning. I remember taking the book of Revelation at Bible college, and one of my roommates, the teacher was bringing up the idea that, you know, Jesus coming back should be the, our, 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 the thing we want more than anything, you know, that uh, you know, no, nothing else in this life should appeal to us the way that does. And, and my roommate said, you know, what do you think about that? And I said, well, I want to get married. I want to have kids. I want to, you know, do a little bit of life. And, uh, you know, when you think about all the things that our brothers and sisters are going through right now in Afghanistan and obviously other parts of the world, I can guarantee you there's nothing else they want to see but the Lord's return. But, you know, when we live in, in a place of great prosperity where we don't struggle with those things for the most part, um, you know, we can think differently. I remember by the end of the class, you know, my mindset had changed. And I said, I want Jesus to come back. You know, that's, that's, that's my chief aim. And, uh, and that needs to be our chief aim, you know. It's, it's interesting, the church generally has flourished under persecution and has struggled during prosperity because we cling to the things of this world. And so as we look at the Lord's return this morning, that's, that's really the whole theme of the book of Revelation. The king is coming. And Jesus has been, you know, taking that bit by bit, taking that which is rightfully is with the seal judgments, the trumpet judgments, the bold judgments. He's saying it's mine. You don't get to do with it what you want anymore. You don't get to destroy it anymore. And so we ended the first half of chapter 19 with a blessing for those who are invited to Jesus' wedding feast uh, when he returns to set up that kingdom. And today we're going to see an invitation to a different supper, a feast of carrion birds. Because that which believers have hoped and prayed for since Adam and Eve fell is finally going to happen. Not the destruction of the wicked, but Jesus is going to return to right every wrong and set up a world where no more wrongs are done. And so today we're going to see the return of the King of Kings. So chapter 19, verse 11 says, And I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. And he that sat upon him was called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he does judge and make war. His eyes were as a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns. And he had a name written that no man knew but he himself." And he was clothed with a vesture dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies which were in heaven followed him upon white horses, clothed in fine linen, white and clean. And out of his mouth goes a sharp sword, that with it he should smite the nations. And he shall rule them with a rod of iron. And he treads the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. And he has on his vesture and on his thigh a name written, King of Kings, and Lord of Lords. Here we see John has in the vision, he sees Jesus returning, exiting heaven to deal with the rebels on earth. And it starts off, I saw heaven open, literally heaven standing open. It already opened up during the seventh bowl judgment in Revelation 16, uh, verse 21, and there fell out of, uh, upon men out, a great hail out of heaven. Heaven opens up, God brings that supernatural hail judgment upon the earth, and then right after that, Jesus comes out. And that's what John sees here. Uh, he says, heaven was standing open, and behold, a white horse. Now, that's how the Great Tribulation started, right? The first seal was broken, and it says that, behold, a white horse came forth, and he had a bow in his hand, but no arrows, and he went forth conquering and to conquer, right? That was the Antichrist. This time, it's not an imposter. This is the real white horse, and the one riding it is the real king of kings, for it calls him, it says he is called faithful and true. 
interesting, we're going to see Jesus is going to have four names. This is the first of four names ascribed to Him in this chapter. Now, certainly, Jesus' name is, is Jesus. A lot of times people say the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, Lord is His title. He's Master, Kurios. Jesus is His name. He who will save His people from their sins. Christ, Christos, is His mission, the anointed one, the one promised of God. But he has lots of other names, just like the Lord has many names in Scripture because they describe his character, his reputation, what he's like. And here we see he is the one who is called, the first of these four names, faithful and true, dependable and genuine, trustworthy and real. (laughs) Everything the Antichrist is not. Everything the Antichrist sold the world was a sham, both in his motive and in reality. Everything he promised he couldn't deliver and he didn't care. Jesus, on the other hand, has substance, and he's come to deal with the imposter, for it says, in righteousness he does judge and make war. The word here, judge, actually just means to make up one's mind, to decide, to come to a a conclusion, a decision. You know, war has been going on here for a while on earth uh, during the campaign of Armageddon and prior to that. Lots of decisions have been made by various world leaders, but Jesus is the one who is right when he makes decisions. He is the one who is right, for in righteousness he decides things. In righteousness he makes war. The Bible does say in Ecclesiastes 3.8, the famous song was written, you know, a time for this, a time for that, you know. There's a time for war and a time for peace. And this is a time for war. Jesus has decided war is the only option left. Why? Matthew 24, he told us beforehand. Matthew 24, verses 21 and 22, Jesus explains. Matthew 24, 21. It says, For then shall be great tribulation, such as was not since the beginning of the world to this time, no, nor ever shall be. And except those days should be shortened, there should no flesh be saved. You know, is it the Antichrist and all the armies fighting against him? Are they going to all of a sudden go, you know what? This is bad. We should stop. They're not going to be the ones to shorten it. Jesus is the one who has to come back. Because if he didn't, no life would be saved. So this is the only option left. Now, the Jesus here in Revelation 19 who returns to make war He looks very different than the one who walked in Jerusalem and went to the cross. It's very similar to the vision that John saw at the very beginning of Revelation, for it says, his eyes were as a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns. Blazing, his eyes were like, you know, the, 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 you know, the the blazes of like a a fire. And uh, my metaphors are not working this morning. You know, his eyes are fiery, and, and it speaks to his anger, you know. In Psalm 7, verses 11 through 13, that famous verse, God is angry with the wicked every day, uh, billboards notwithstanding. I know that they make statements, but I'll go with God's Word. God is angry with the wicked every day. He judges the righteous, gives justice to the righteous, but he's angry with the wicked every day. But then we read the next two verses. If he, the wicked, does not turn, repent, he, the Lord, will wet his sword. He, the Lord, has bent his bow and made it ready. Verse 13 of Psalm 7, he has also prepared for him, he, the Lord, for the wicked who won't repent, the instruments of death. He ordains his arrows against the persecutors. There's no option left. 
His eyes are a flame of fire. The Lord's angry. They won't repent. They won't turn. No matter how much he's tried to get their attention, they won't repent. And so now that anger decides to act. It says on his head were many crowns. These are not the Stephanos wreaths, you know, that they would give to the victors in, in uh, feats of contest. Uh, th- these, this is the diadema. This is the royal crown, the highest symbol of the highest ruling power in a region. You know, it's interesting, monarchs of multiple regions uh, usually own many crowns. For example, the, the Queen of England, you know, if, if she's in a, a different part of her kingdom, she wears a different crown, the one that's for that kingdom. Um, and so that's, this is something that's common throughout history. I don't know how it would look for Jesus to wear multiple crowns at once, but I, I think John's description here is less a, a comment about the look of Jesus's headwear, the style of his headwear. I think it's more a statement about the fact that Jesus is the ruler of every region you know, that he has many crowns. He's the ruler of every region. Everyone else is just, is just a squatter. He mentions here, and he had a name written that no man knew but he himself. Literally, no man has known. No one can know. And so this is a little bit frustrating for a Bible teacher because it means I can't teach this passage. I don't know what the name is, you know, and it's futile to guess because it tells us here up to this point in time in history, which actually hasn't occurred yet, no man has known. So if you want to know what the new name is, you want to know the answer, you got to hang around until the end because that's what it tells us. This is a promise given to the church in Philadelphia. He that overcomes, this is Revelation 3.12 if you're taking notes, he that overcomes, him I'll write upon him my new name. So you, you got to hang in there and then you can find out what the new name is and you can have it too. Can't tell you what it is. Verse 13, and he was clothed with a vesture dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. The vesture is the outer garment, like the robe or the coat. And it mentions it's dipped in blood, not recently dipped. It means it's in the perfect tense, which means it's, it had been dipped in blood in the past, and it's still bloodied because of it. Um, there is debate between Bible teachers on whether this refers to the blood of Jesus' enemies when he judges them, or is it referred to the blood that he shed on the cross for us? Only because Jesus is just now going to return from heaven and judge the wicked, it seems more appropriate to me that it's the blood he shed for us on the cross. But I, I'm not going to argue with anybody about it. If they think the other way, there's good reasons to think that too. The point, though, is either way, whichever one it is, it gives the, the, the concept of this truth, and the truth is that sin has to be judged. Whether it's the cross or because you reject the cross, Jesus deals with you. Either way, sin has to be judged. It cannot just be overlooked. When we read about God's character in Exodus chapter 34, verses 5 through 7, remember Moses said, Lord, show me your glory. And the Lord's like, if I show you my glory, you won't survive. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to take you and I'm going to hide you in the cleft of the rock. And when I pass by, I'm going to cover the cave, you know, cover the opening and my glory will pass by. And as I do, this is the closest you'll get. I'll declare my name to you. I'll show you what I'm like. And then when when I'm done, I'll I'll take my hand off and you can see the the glow of after I've, you know, the the little bit what's left of the glory after I, I go by. And we read through there, and it talks about how the Lord is merciful and gracious and patient, and He forgives iniquity and all. I mean, wonderful things, things we cling to. That's my God. Sometimes we forget the very last part where the Lord tells Moses, and that I will by no means clear the guilty. He says, 
and that will by no means clear the guilty visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children, the children's children and the th- unto the third and to the fourth generation. The, the phrase unto the third and the fourth generation is the idea, the concept that God will never change about this. It's not that they, they, you know, somebody sins, curses a third and fourth generation. No, the idea, the concept is, is that God's never going to change. Sin will always be something that he has to deal with. It's part of his nature. A common response, you know, I, I hear when I share the gospel with people is the belief, well, I, I think God's, you know, a forgiving God, and I believe he'll forgive everybody, including me. That is not biblical. God doesn't just blanketly forgive. You know, if, if that's the case, then the cross is, is a joke, a horrible one. It's, it's a sick joke because Jesus didn't need to do it. God longs to forgive everyone, and He extends mercy to everyone, but He he doesn't just forgive. We have to receive that mercy because God is also just. And if I don't receive His payment for my sin on the cross, there is no forgiveness. And His name, it says, after it describes His clothing, it tells us His third name here. One we don't know. One's faithful and true. The third one here is that he's called the Word of God. In John 1.1, 1, 1, it says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. We've already known Jesus by this name, that he's the Word. In Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 2, it says, God, who had sundry times and various ways, he spoke to us, you know, spoke to the fathers through the prophets in the past, is now, verse 2, spoken unto us by his Son. You know? God has spoken to us by His Son. And then in verse 3, it says that Jesus is the express image, the mirror image of the Father. He is the one that God decided to communicate to us through to show us what He's like. We use words to express ourselves. We used to tease my dad all the time because at the dinner table, you know, he'd have something in his mouth and, you know, he'd want the salt or the butter or something and he'd point and we'd be like, Dad, noun, verb, which one, you know? Tell our kids all the time when they're little, you know, eh, so use your words. You know, no, eh, use your words, you know. What is it? What are you looking for, you know? Jesus, he is the way God uses his words. He is the expression of the Father so we can know what the Lord's like. He's the perfect expression of God to man. Now, it is very appropriate that this name accompanies the description of his clothing being dipped in blood because that concept that the Word of God teaches us, it teaches us what this image represents, that God both has love for us and a hatred for our sin. Those are both equally true. God has a deep love for us, but a deep hatred for our sin. And so in in Jesus' very name and his very appearance, there's no skewed view of God there. He is the Lord, everything. He is all of it, you know? He's merciful and gracious, and He's just and righteous, you know? Verse 14, here's your part. This is your cue. And the armies which were in heaven followed Him upon white horses, clothed in fine linen, white and clean. I am sure at some point as a child, my parents put me on a pony or something, but I have no recollection of ever riding a horse, which means I probably need to rectify that so I can be ready. The armies here, this, it means a large organized group of soldiers. It mentions that they are, which were in heaven. It doesn't say they were on earth. It doesn't say they're doing a drive-by of heaven. It says they are already in heaven. 
And it tells us who they are. They are clothed in fine linen, white and clean. Revelation 19.8, and to her, the bride of Christ, us, the church, was granted that she should be arrayed in fine linen, clean and white. That's, this is our part. It's our part. You know? We're going to be raptured to heaven before the tribulation. We're going to be rewarded in heaven and presented faultless before the Father during the tribulation. And then we're going to return with Jesus at the end of the tribulation. That is the consistent teaching of Scripture. Now, sometimes I hear people say, yeah, I can't wait, man. I hope my boss is down there at Armageddon because I'm going to get him. You know, it's like, you know, Jesus points at the end of Christ and you're like. <laughs> the word here followed is actually in the imperfect tense, which means we follow for a while and then he goes on and we don't follow. That's because we don't do any of the fighting. <laughs> Jesus does all of the fighting. So, no fighting for you. Verse 15. And out of his mouth, the Lord, goes a sharp sword that with it he should smite the nations. From out of his mouth goes, literally, goes out, departs this sharp sword. Now, this word for sword here is not the normal sword we think of. You know, we think of just, you know, kind of a slashing sword or something like that. This is a very lengthy weapon. It's, it's a lengthy double grip handle. It's, you'd wield it almost like a, a scythe. Um, it, it was used by the Thracians as both a cutting and a thrown weapon. Uh, actually, they called it a javelin. Um, it was not very useful in close combat, you know, and it was not a tactical weapon. It wasn't like, on God, you know, I mean, none of that. This is a brutalizing weapon meant to bring destruction and death from afar. This is not something that you get up close. This is something you wield and you just cut down people, you know, or you throw it and cut down people. It was a brutalizing weapon that the Thracians used. And it goes flying out of Jesus' mouth, it says, uh, that with it he should smite, strike down the nations, those who are gathered there in Armageddon. We'll, we'll see that in a moment. It says here, though, and he shall, future tense, so presently there's something going out of his mouth, but future he shall rule them with a rod of iron. The word there, uh, rule, is to shepherd or care for. It means to govern with direct involvement, not from far away. Uh, this will not be where Jesus just comes back and he cleans up the mess and he's like, all right, see you in a thousand years, you know. No, he's going to be directly involved in our lives during that thousand-year reign. He's going to be directly involved in shepherding and caring for, you know, those who go into the millennial kingdom. Um, and he shall rule them with a rod of iron. Now, who's the them? Well, Daniel 7, verses 11 through 12, we studied that and we uh, uh, studied the book of Daniel. But it tells us something interesting. Daniel 11, 7, chapter 7, verses 11 and 12, we we studied in Daniel 7 that there will be four world powers during the end times. Certainly the most powerful one the, the, will be the Antichrist kingdom, and it will subjugate the other three world powers during the end times. But note what, what Daniel says here that he saw. Daniel seven eleven. and because of the voice of the great words which the horn, the Antichrist, the fourth kingdom, the Antichrist kingdom was slain, Babylon, and his body destroyed and given to the burning flame, verse 12. As concerning the rest of the beasts, these three other world powers, they had their dominion taken away. They're not in charge anymore. Yet, 
their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. So these other three world powers, these other nations will be in existence in the millennial kingdom, but Jesus will govern them, shepherd them, it says, with a rod of iron. Jesus' reign will have no shenanigans, no political nonsense, none of it. You violate his rule, and you immediately pay the price. Righteousness will cover the world. There will be peace. There will be generosity. There will be fairness. There will be safety on pain of death. And this will occur after he strikes down the nations at Armageddon. For it says here, verse 15, that's what the sword goes out of his mouth. We get a little aside here. He shall rule them in the future with a rod of iron. Then we come back to the present. And he, so this is after the sword comes out of his mouth, he, or it mentions the sword departing out of his mouth. It says, he treads the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. The word here for treads is in the present tense. So this is the first thing that Jesus will do when he begins his war campaign. He's going to trample uh, the, the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. Jesus, we know, will first not deal with the Antichrist. He will first go to Basra and deal with those who have surrounded the Jews who fled there from the Antichrist. We read about that in Isaiah 63. I've referenced it a few times, but I'd, I'd like to read it today. Isaiah 63, verses 1 through 4. <clears throat> Isaiah is having a vision of this end time, of, of God's judgment coming upon um, those at Basra who are attacking God's people. And as he sees it, he asks a question. He says in Isaiah 63:1, who is this that comes from Edom with dyed garments from Basra? This that is glorious in his apparel, traveling in the greatness of his strength. So the idea here is that you know, he sees this person coming you know, from, from Edom, and his, his garments are spattered in blood, and he's, got, you know, he's gloriously dressed, and he's got this huge retinue, this huge group that's following him, us. He says, who is it? And the answer is, the Lord answers, I that speak in righteousness, mighty to save. And then he asks the question, Isaiah, the Lord, he asked to the Lord, why are you red in your apparel and your garments like him that treads in the wine fat? And the Lord explains, I have trodden the wine press alone, and of the people there was none with me, for I will tread them in mine anger and trample them in my fury, and their blood shall be sprinkled, spattered upon my garments, and I will stain all my raiment. For the day of vengeance is in my heart, and the year of my redeemed is come. So Jesus will first go to Basra. We know after that he will then go to Jerusalem and he will liberate the city of Jerusalem and then he will go and deal with the Antichrist. Now we know that during that time the Antichrist will be mobilizing all the forces there in the valley of Megiddo uh, against the Lord, but we'll get to that later. Jesus here, it mentions when he comes to Basra, he comes in the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. You remember when Jesus told Peter, when Peter, you know, cut the guy's ear off, and he said, Peter, don't you realize I can, I can call a whole legion of angels, you know, to fight for me, you know, if I want? We saw Jesus holding back, right? We saw Jesus not unleashing the fierceness and the wrath of Almighty God, but here he will not hold back. The word there, fierceness, means a state of intense anger with the implication of passionate outbursts. I can't, I can't even fathom the concept of Jesus seeing his people, you know, f- there, 
you know, surrounded by the enemy and the fierceness that just breaks out. The word wrath just means divine punishment, you know, that he gives them what they deserve. Hebrews says it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. It is a horrifying thing for God to give someone what they deserve. Verse 16, Revelation 19, we get to Jesus' fourth name. And he had on his vesture and on his thigh a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. It was common for an artist back then, if they made a statue, to engrave their name on the thigh or on an article of clothing uh, to show that this is my statue, to show ownership. And so we see his name written on his thigh or on his clothing here that he's King of Kings and Lord of Lords. It speaks of ownership. Jesus is the master of all masters. That's what Lord of Lords means. It's kurios, the boss of all bosses, the master of all masters. He's the ruler of every ruler. Which therefore brings up an appropriate question. Have I acknowledged his lordship over my life? You know, have, have you bent the knee? Do you bend the knee daily to him and say, Lord, you're the boss. You're in charge. What do you want me to do today? How do you want me to handle this situation? Now, while Jesus is dealing with Basra, another angel arrives to announce the second feast in this chapter. And trust me, you want to be part of the first one and not this one, because if you're part of this feast, it's because you're the food. I uh, tongue-in-cheek almost named this sermon uh, Dinner Time and thought better of it. (laughs) Maybe a little insensitive. Verse 17, And I saw an angel standing in the sun, and he cried with a loud voice, saying to all the birds that fly in the midst of heaven, come and gather yourself together unto the supper of the great God, that you may eat the flesh of kings and the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and of them that sit on them, and the flesh of all men, both free and slave, both small and great. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies gathered together to make war against him that sat on the horse and against his army. And the beast was taken, and with him the false prophet that wrought miracles before him, with which he deceived them that had received the mark of the beast and them that worshiped his image. These both were cast alive into a lake of fire burning with brimstone. And the remnant were slain with the sword of him that sat upon the horse, which sword proceeds out of his mouth, and all the birds were filled with their flesh. We start here with the angel who invites the carrion birds to God's great supper, as he calls it. The angel is standing in the sun. It doesn't say he's standing on the sun. He would need to be gigantic for John to see him if he's standing on the sun. It's more likely that this means he's standing in, in the sun, like wherever the sun is in the sky, that he kind of blocks it out, and, and, and that's appropriate because that's where all the birds, you know, they fly, so they can see and hear his voice. And he invites all of them to God's great supper because anyone who is gathered here to fight against the Lord in Armageddon is going to die. And so they're going to be there to feast upon the corpses. I don't want to read through all the details. There's a lot of I said flesh about 18,000 times in that verse. And I think the reason it's repeated, though, is to, to show us two things. Number one, it's, it's bad news. But number two, it wants to make it very clear to us that it doesn't matter what, what your socioeconomic status is in society. If you make this choice to be there, you die. 
Small and great means whether you're important or insignificant, whether you're powerful or you have no influence. Every person who engages in Armageddon had a choice, and all of them chose to reject the Lord. You know, there, there are some people who live uh, a lifestyle that I can't relate to at all. You know, they, they, they're like, man, wow, that, but that's a different way of having to make decisions, you know? And then there are those who, you know, are, are in great poverty, and, and I don't even know, like, where do you begin? Like, how do you start to make good decisions in a situation like that? So I, I realize that depending upon socioeconomic status, some decisions are easier than others, right? So do some positions in society make choosing the right decision harder? Sure. But ultimately, everyone has a choice to how they respond. And you know, the truth is, many from every different background, rich, poor, insignificant, powerful, many of them will lose their lives because they reject the Antichrist. So where would ever anyone else's excuse be? They will have no excuse for rejecting the Lord and taking part in Armageddon. For in verse 19, we see as Jesus is dealing with Basra and then freeing, liberating Jerusalem, it says, during this time, I saw the beast, in verse 19, and the kings of the earth and their armies, they gathered together to make war. Uh, perfect tense means they have set the battle in array. You know, uh, when Jesus appears through the opening in the and descends upon Basra, all the participants in Armageddon, they stop fighting each other and they unite, 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 not unite. That's the bad thing about having notes. Sometimes the mouth is quicker than the brain. They unite to fight the army from heaven. But there will be no epic ending to this movie, all right? It's not going to be Darth Vader versus, you know, Luke and this big, huge clash back and forth, okay? It's not going to be anything like that, all right? There, there will be no pause in the hallway as one is trying to get domination over the other, all right? This is not going to be the Dragon Ball Z fight at the end of the episode where they fly at each other and clash in this great epic battle, There will be no fight between the armies of the earth and the armies of heaven, for look at verse 20. And the beast was taken, and with him the false prophet. The word taken just means snatched, seized. It's over. Done. They're just snatched. It's more like Indiana Jones when the guy came out with a samurai sword, and he's like, and Jones just goes, boom. That's it. It's over. Anticlimactic, but... That's, because, that's, why, that's why Psalm 2 says, when, when the, the kings of the earth say, let's break their bonds asunder, let's make let's freedom, and the, you know, the Lord just laughs. He says he'll have them in derision. It's not because, it's not because the Lord is, 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 is um, the word I'm looking for, is, that's because he's callous. He's thinking this is the most absurd thing I've ever heard. They're just snatching it. You know? You know, it's probably like the runt of the angels. It's like, hey, it's your time. And he's like, go get him, tiny. Because that, that, there's no comparison. Doesn't even name the guy. The guy the, whoever does it, whatever angel, or maybe it's the Lord, of course, but, but it doesn't say. Because that's how small they are compared to the Lord. And that's the point. The Antichrist and the false prophet are simply men. They are, 
The Antichrist is a far cry from the false prophet's claim that the Antichrist could take God because he defeated death. It's not even a battle. Doesn't matter the miracles that were done. Doesn't matter what they convinced the world to do to rally behind him. It's over like that for them. And they were both cast alive into a lake of fire burning with brimstone. We'll get more information on this place, the lake of fire, when we get to Revelation chapter 20. But for now, it is, that is the eternal residence of the unsaved. We call it usually hell is normally how we refer to it. It mentions that it is a lake of fire. That seems like an oxymoron because water and fire don't mix, right? But it mentions here it is a lake the one constantly burning in fire in the sulfur. That's literally how the Greek words this. A lake that is, the, it's the lake that's constantly uh, being on fire because it's in the sulfur. Uh, so I'm not a scientist, but I watched a few videos of burning sulfur. And if you fire sulfur, uh, it liquefies into a blood red goo. I mean, this is a gooey lake. It's a thick lake. And, and when it breaks down, the sulfur breaks down, it gives off toxic, toxic gases. Now, I don't know if hell is exactly like that, but if it's anything close to that, that sounds horrible. And that's just one facet of hell. There's other descriptions of it. Now, our physical bodies, our current bodies that we live in cannot survive in that environment. That's why it's a toxic gas which means that the Antichrist and false prophet must be supernaturally kept alive once they're thrown in there. And that chilling thought reminds me of the words of Jesus to another son of perdition. In Matthew 26, verse 24, at the Last Supper, when Jesus reveals that one of them will betray him, of course the disciples all say, is it me? Is it me? And Jesus eventually, of course, identifies Judas. He calls him the son of perdition. That's a title used for the Antichrist as well. But Jesus says these very chilling words. Matthew 26, 24, the son of man goes as it is written of him. I, I'm going to be betrayed. I'm going to go to the cross. All that was prophesied in Scripture. It's in fulfillment of Scripture. But, woe unto that man by whom the Son of God is betrayed. For it had been good for that man if he had not been born. Not my words. Those are Jesus' words. The Creator's words. Those who would say that hell represents annihilation or destruction, well, that's the same as never being born. Jesus' words make no sense referring to the son of perdition, unless hell is eternal. They make no sense if hell is just the body's destroyed and you cease to exist. Verse 21, what about the rest of the army? And the remnant, what's left of the armies after their general's gone, the remnant were slain with the sword of him that sat upon the horse, which sword proceeds out of his mouth, and all the birds were filled with their flesh. It's that simple. Again, no epic battle. 
Jesus will speak, judgment will fling from his mouth, and every combatant will melt. In Zechariah 14, 12, it explains that this is the plague um, that will kill those that, that, will, that wherewith the Lord will smite all the people that have fought against Jerusalem. It says in Zechariah 12, their flesh shall consume away while they stand upon their feet. Their eyes shall consume away in their holes, their sockets, and their tongue shall consume away in their mouth. He will just speak and the body will stop working. They're just going to melt and then there'll be bird food. To those who would say that the God of the Old Testament is angry, but the Jesus of the New Testament is merciful, or the God of the Old Testament is vengeful, and the Jesus of the New Testament is nice, I would gently say to you, you might want to read your Bible more. And I'm not trying to be snarky. <laughs> I say it with, with a, a genuine challenge to you. You might want to read your Bible more because it's an inaccurate statement. It's a statement born from listening to what someone else has said about the Bible rather than actually doing personal study. Because if you read the Bible from Genesis to Revelation, you're going to find a few things. You're going to find that, yes, the Old Testament, God is angry at sin. And you're going to find God is merciful to sinners. If you read the New Testament, you're going to find that Jesus is merciful to sinners. And you're going to find that Jesus is a wrathful God who's angry at sin. You'll find the same God from Genesis to Revelation all the way through. Jesus is angry at sin every day. We read it in Psalm 711. And here we see him unleashing that anger on a rebellious world because he loves the world that he made. He loves everyone in it. And so he takes this action only when there is no other option to save the world from itself. Jesus truly comes to the rescue of his creation because his creation in their own pride and stubbornness is on the verge of destroying themselves. And that is why it is so important to read our Bible. It's so important. Because here's the problem. If we, if we fail to understand God's love, and we just understand His, his sovereignty, His, his justice, his, his, his wrath, you know, if, if that's all we understand about God, then we get a, end up with a skewed view of God that keeps us far from Him because we're afraid, and it causes us to be unloving to others. On the other hand, if we fail to understand God's anger at sin and all we know is His grace and His mercy, we end up with a skewed view of His kindness that then uses God's grace as a license to sin and even self-glorification. The only un way to understand God correctly and therefore live correctly is to learn the entire Bible. And that's what 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17 tell us. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God. It's profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, and for instruction in righteousness. Why? So that the man of God may be perfect, mature, complete, thoroughly furnished, have everything you need unto all good works so we can live the right way, right? Say, so, Lord, well, I don't know, what, how do I know what to do in this situation? How do I know how you'd handle this situation? You got to know the whole word. Got to know what it says. Haley, in his Bible handbook, he has a page way towards the end, and it's a recommendation for pastors. And he says, because the Bible's so important that we understand all of it, he says, I recommend that pastors 
teach the Bible from Genesis to Revelation and encourage their congregation to read from Genesis to Revelation as he's doing so. If there's any advice that I can give to you as a Christian, it's this. Read your Bible every day. Read your Bible every day. When I say things like that, you know, I got to know the whole Bible to be a whole Christian? That's, the Bible's big. Yep, that's why I got a whole life to figure it out. But here's the truth of it. Even if you just read a little bit every day, I promise you this, no matter how old you are, you will very likely finish the Bible not once, but multiple times if you just make it a part of your daily habit that you read it every day and then apply it to your life. And in the process, will you come across things you don't understand? Sure, I still do too. It's why I, it's why I have a job where I, I spend all these hours a week trying to figure it out. But as you read it more and more, you learn more and more. You're always growing, always learning. And thereby, we're becoming more like Christ. Amen? Amen. So read your Bible every day. Anyway, what dinner are you planning to attend? I hope it's the marriage supper of the Lamb. What army have you enlisted in? Because there's a lot of armies on earth there at Armageddon. There's not just the Antichrist army. There's a lot of different armies. A lot of different interests are represented in Armageddon, all right? Because some people say, well, well I'm not opposed to God. I'm not, a, I'm not for the devil. Okay, but are, are, you, are you in the Lord's army? Because there's a lot of things that you can enlist in. A lot of armies on earth that you can join, but there's only one heavenly army. There's only one bride of Christ. Jesus is coming back. And everyone has to pick a side in this life. So choose the one who's faithful and true instead of the liar. Let's all stand. You know, we read that scripture where it says the Lord has them in derision. And I've heard people teach that, that God's just mock. He doesn't care about them. But if you read at the end, verses 10 through 12 of Psalm 2, he says, therefore, O kings of the earth, repent. I mean, I'm summarizing, but that's what he's saying, repent. In verse 12, I love it. He says, kiss the son, lest he be angry with you when it comes in all of his wrath. Blessed are those, all those who put their trust in him. Anyone, anyone who puts their trust in him they can be blessed. That's what the Lord wants. That's why he wrote Psalm 2, so that in the end, people would say, you know what? I'm not going to that. <laughs> you know what? I'm not buying that guy's lies. I'm not, I'm not buying the fake guy on the white horse. I want the real one. The real one's coming. He promises a lot, but the real one is genuine and true. And he's the King of kings and Lord of lords. I want him. And so, Lord, that's what we say this morning. We want you. We don't, we don't want... <laughs> We don't want to buy into the lies. We don't want to enlist in other armies, Lord. We want to sign up for your army. And, and Lord, for those of us who have here, of course, have, probably most of us have already signed up for that. We want to be faithful soldiers. So, Lord, in the meantime, you call us to occupy till you come. So fill us with your spirit that we might be disciple makers, Lord, that we might be pouring into those that are in our sphere of influence, Lord, that we might be reading your word every day and learning about you and becoming more like you, knowing what pleases you. Until that day, Lord, when you come take us home and you reward us, and then, Lord, we get to ride back from heaven with you. Hasten that day, we pray, Lord Jesus. Rescue us, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.